0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about an article from Russell Moore, a tweet from adding Kinzinger, and then the potential perils of self-esteem. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Mr. Simpkins, how are we today? I am average. (laughs) <laughs> great <laughs> we're gonna go with it we're just a c a c plus that's what we're gonna go with is that an is that average i think a c is but i was trying to give you the plus as well right mm. just you know like that's a best. little a, a little tick above average there very brian prom of you how are you doing <laughs> I'm doing okay, man. It's, uh, I was just telling you off air. Sometimes it's, you, you know, our, our primary jobs are pastors, and sometimes your day is so busy, and then you're like, okay, got to do the radio show. And it's tough to get change to. the brain get, every to do now the and then. get to do the radio show. Sorry, get to. Uh, and it's it's <laughs> it's hard to move the brain sometimes from one to the other. I'm having one of those days. So who knows where this is going to go. But you shouldn't be moving uh, the brain at all, Brian. That brain likes to stay stationary <laughs> the secure. Yeah, right,
1: right. Exactly.
0: That's called brain damage, right. That is a, you might not be a brain scientist, as we've learned, but that um, much we know. Mm-hmm. And so that is that Uh usually when we start the show the last couple of weeks, one way we've done it is just say, hey, we're not a very uh news focused show, but we're going to kind of run through a bunch. Uh, but you sent me a uh, blog post today from Russell Moore. He's been a bit on fire, as the kids like to say, since all that happened at the Capitol on Wednesday. And uh, kids are you talking to <laughs> my own? <laughs> and, uh, and and you sent it to me and I read it and I was like, all right, let's just start there. Let's yeah. dive into the deep end because at, it's. We are going to do some stuff today that's not focused on what happened at the Capitol last Wednesday, but it still, rightfully so, is dominating the conversation right now. And it's still weird, though. It's it is dominating it, and then you see a news report about COVID stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, like that's a big deal too. And uh, did you forget about else, COVID? Is that <laughs> no? But it's just not at the head of the of of the news cycle anymore, right? Like I watch the Today Show every morning, and they did like three different segments on on uh, on Trump and on the Capitol and on the inauguration. And then it was like, uh, like segment four, hey, the deadliest day of COVID yesterday. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like wow. uh, it was just it was just wild. So I want to read just two or three paragraphs right here and just have you react. And then we're going to jump in, as is often the case, whether it be Russell Moore or Scott Sauls or David French. A lot more here than we can really get at. It's a, it's a really well-written thing called The Roman Road from Insurrection. Uh, and, and Moore writes this later on. He kind of begins by going through what happened, how he was feeling, uh, just some of this, his dissonance over the last four years. He's been pretty uh, anti-Trump over the last four years. And so he wrote this. He said, if you read nothing else, read this. If you can defend this, this being what happened last Wednesday at the Capitol, if you can defend this, you can defend anything. You can wave this away with, quote, well, what about or by changing the subject to a private platform, removing an account, inciting violence as Orwellian, then where at long last is your limit? The country must turn to our constitution, to the founding principles of this nation. And as Christians, Moore writes, we must be the people who are shaped and formed by the word of God. As a teenager in the Southern Baptist Church, uh, Moore says, I was taught to evangelize using what's called the Roman road. I think we were all probably taught that if we grew up in youth group or church. Uh, what that meant was that while all scripture is profitable and able to be used to share the gospel, one could guide someone through the plan of salvation using verses all found in the book of Romans. So rather than flipping all over the canon, you could just use this to talk about god 's love God's judgment, the necessity of the cross, the power of the resurrection, faith and repentance, how to live by the spirit, etc. So he goes on to say, this isn't a gospel presentation, but he's going to walk us through the Roman road uh, and how this can get through this crisis or explain this crisis that we saw last Wednesday. Uh, fascinating uh, kind of way to frame this around the Roman road. but Ian, what do you think about just that first sentence? If you could defend this, you can defend anything
1: yeah, it's been interesting because I've seen a number of people tweet similar sentiments and Mm -hmm. in the tweet or in the post warn about what about ism Mm -hmm. and the first five comments like clockwork are (laughs) what about and i'm like "The, the the tweet itself was about not doing that it doesn't mean that there isn't still a case to be made i don't know it's interesting like we you know we learn this even in like you know premarital counseling or couples therapy or things like that like hey if if uh your spouse brings a grievance to you. That's not the time to then deflect and bring up your grievance <laughs> with them. Yeah. Yeah. Although your grievance might also be legitimate. That's mm-hmm. There's there's certainly something to be said about the timing and pace. And again, I feel like we could take this a thousand different directions. But I, I think for someone like Moore, given his background, given his what you would maybe call his, his base, I suppose, for him to say that bluntly if you read nothing else read this if you can defend this you can defend anything that Mm -hmm. to me um is the state of affairs that i think a lot of camps find themselves in maybe unaware that they're in that camp but certainly eager to point the finger at others they deem in a version of that camp themselves and i think that's part of what gets so tricky and all this, because it feels like it's it's constantly defending all over the place. But I think I think he makes a great point there.
0: Yeah. And and I have a, a huge amount of respect for Russell Moore. I know there's people out there who don't like his politics or uh, and if he's nothing else, if not bold uh, over these last couple years. And, and so let me just here's how I want to do this. I'm just going to run through the headings again. I would encourage you to go read this. This will uh, take you a good, you know, get a good cup of coffee or an unsweetened iced tea, sit down and give yourself about 15, 20 minutes to, de- to tear through this uh, because there's a lot there. So let me just go the headings because he's going to walk us through the Roman road uh, as it relates to what happened at the Capitol, and really beyond the Capitol. What's been going on in uh, what he sees going on in Christianity and in our nation. And he says this one truth cannot be brought about by lying. Truth cannot be brought about by lying Two. God cannot be brought about by committing evil. That's an interesting one. God cannot be brought about by committing evil. Three, justice demands accountability. Justice demands accountability. He goes on to say, uh, number four, integrity demands consistency. Uh, mm. Integrity demands consistency. Uh, and uh, then he ends with this one. Hope starts in lament. Hope starts in lament. So, Ian, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but why don't you just choose one of those that jumps out to you? Because each one of those, we could do a full segment on every one of those blocks right there uh, of what Moore said. But, but as you reflect upon where we're at, what's been going on, wh- any either any of those jump out at you?
1: I mean, they all have kind of a common thread. I was I was thinking of that uh, that quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He said, um, "Oh, I don't want to butcher this. Something like." The the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. Sort of the what we often hear, and then un, you know, unfortunately, nowadays even in Christian circles, circles of faith, like, well, yeah, sure, we might have had to do a couple of this, a little bit of that, but ultimately, it's for fill in the blank, you know. And uh, I think that's part of what he's what he's getting after with, with the whole arc here. I I like justice demands accountability. To be honest, I think yeah, I think that's. I don't often find accountability as the go-to word when talking about topics of justice, you know, like especially in church circles, accountability, accountability tends to be often relegated to categories of like sexual purity. Like oh, I got my accountability Ooh. partner and yes, uh, yes. he knows any of the websites that I go to. And then we have a talk later and you're like, okay. And that's, that's definitely good. I like, keep, keep doing that. Um, but the idea though, that, that justice I don't know, like, can I, could I say a big J justice, um, requires that there is a level of, of transparency. And like we were talking about yesterday, we can't just jump right to unity. Can't we all just get along? You know, like Shane Claiborne was talking about, like, man, there needs to be some some repentance, some reconciliation. And I don't really think that you can have those even, really, without some level of of what the Bible would call, you know, accountability. And I think that yeah. often seems to get, Overlooked. I like the way he puts it here. He Says unity demands accountability. Justice demands accountability. Without such, we are all left. All we are left with is quote lawlessness leading to more lawlessness from Romans six. Um, I think I think he's right on there, and I think that I
0: think that's a good that's a good treatment of that passage. Absolutely. I I also just. Really resonated with his integrity demands consistency. People are watching. He says people are overhearing. Some of them are your own children. And he goes on to say how inconsistency and lack of integrity, what the result has been. Uh, as he says, seeing Jesus save signs and God bless America signs at the Capitol the other day. So just a fin- fantastic article. Even if you disagree with what Russell Moore has to say, uh, it is well worth your time. It's up on our Facebook page. Go ahead there and give it a read. Uh, coming up next, I want to talk about a uh, tweet from a lawmaker from the state of Illinois uh, about the role of pastors in this day and what we're dealing with right now. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Is it fair to say alongside? You and I don't sit next to each other anymore. We're, in, we're, like, like, we're like separated by many miles right now. That's how you should say it. Uh, Brian Fromm,
1: separated by ma- many miles with Ian Simpkins.
0: <laughs> it doesn't flow as easily. It doesn't. I, I could uh, barely even say it to make the joke. Yeah, we are, we are just, you know, metaphorically alongside one another in spirit. Mm. And uh, Are we yes. even that, though? And with technology, (laughs) Uh, because, you know, me as a creature of habit, I would just promise you I'm going to continue saying alongside and everybody can just, you know, if they want to argue with it, so be it. But uh, I I thought about getting a cardboard an Ian Simpkins cardboard cutout and putting it next to me here. But that that seemed a little strange. So,
1: no, think about Um, it again. Reopen that Pandora's (laughs) box. My wife would be like, What is that? Never mind. (laughs) Helps me do the radio show. (laughs) I think you saying never mind makes it creepier, to be honest. I think that's mm. a fun fact. I once got my hands on a uh, a life size Jar Jar Binks cardboard cutout, and I was (laughs) working at Starbucks. So I I closed at Starbucks and I hid Jar Jar in like the back office area. And he was like, I think he was like holding a gun pointing at you, too. And, um, (laughs) The people that opened the coffee shop the next day
0: were not thrilled with me. They were not, not happy. That's really funny. That's, that's good. I, I forgot that you worked at a Starbucks. I think you uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you are like the perfect personality to work at a Starbucks. I think, <laughs> that you, I think you probably not only did you enjoy it, but people it was probably like uh, uh, people you made people probably feel at home. You, yeah, wow. I'm guessing. Wow, would you say fine. you were a good uh, a good barista? Would you say you? Were? I mean,
1: I was an okay barista. I I wouldn't say that it was like I was the dream employee necessarily. I, um, <laughs> good
0: point. Your boss I was, may not think so. But
1: I was seventeen. Yeah, if I if I could go back and have some words with seventeen-year-old Ian, I would.
0: <laughs> we're going to do a segment on that at some point. That's not the a words, good idea. to seventeen-year-old. No, no, thank you. Well. <laughs> yeah something we 've been talking about a lot obviously since Wednesday is not only what happened at the capitol what's been going on in our culture but as Ian and I both being pastors uh the the one of the interesting discussions for the two of us and I think for a lot of people out there is what's the role of the pastor right now what's the role of the church uh, as it is um, speaking truth calling out you know conspiracy theories ca- kind of taking a stand on things and uh, we talked about yesterday how, you know, this past weekend, you know, if you had 10 churches, you probably had 10 churches handle it differently uh, from completely changing their sermons to not even mentioning at all and everything in between. And, uh, and so I want to continue having that conversation. And with that in mind, Adam Kinzinger, who is uh, a congressman from the state of Illinois here, uh, and I personally think Adam Kinsinger has been really impressive over the last couple of weeks during this. Adam Kinzinger mm. wrote this on Twitter. Uh, And if you go searching for this, I will tell you it has been taken down, uh, which is an interesting kind of – Part of this, because as of 45 minutes ago, it was there, but uh, he did write this. And I just want to talk about the concept of it. He said, I believe there's a huge burden now on pastors and clergy who openly spread the conspiracies of a stolen election. And he goes on to to link to Robert Jeffers and Franklin Graham and another one that I'm unaware of, Uh, among many others, he writes to admit their mistakes and lead their flocks out of darkness to truth. Uh, again, he's taking this down and we were guessing that it might be because Robert Jeffers really pushed back and said, I never said that it was stolen. And so uh, there there might be some uh, something going on there. But in the bigger point there, his point that I believe the huge burden is now on pastors and clergy. He says that specifically the ones who openly spread conspiracy, but I would even take it away from that and just say pastors and clergy altogether, he says, to admit their mistakes, but also to lead their flocks out of darkness to truth, do you think? Uh, how are you wrestling this with a pa- as a pastor? That's really where I, I want to go here. How are you, Ian Simpkins, personally wrestling with this? Do how how uh, how out front do you want to be with your own thoughts, or how much do you feel like you have to guard because there's people on on all sorts of different sides at your church? Maybe how are you wrestling with this as a pastor?
1: Yeah, I think the fact that he says well, there's now a heavy burden. My first gut. Reaction was well. The, that burden's always been there, whether mm-hmm. it was you know regarding the election or something in the past. Like the the burden for pastors and clergy to be truth tellers and to shepherd and lead their people, their communities, their churches toward truth. That burden that burden has always been there. Again, where it feels like this often gets murky is I. Everyone thinks they have the truth. That's the I don't I don't know a whole lot of people that are mm. willingly knowingly clinging to falsities and then like leading other people simply for the purpose of deception. I don't, I don't know a lot of people (laughs) that fit that kind of maybe, maybe one or two, but Mm -hmm. you know, for me, I'd I'd say a couple of things. One, the centrality of the gospel has to just be permeating everything you're doing because it is, it is really tempting. It's really easy to get caught up in every argument du jour and every issue and every, I mean, you know, and I, and I've certainly been on the receiving end of that. Like, Hey, you need to, you need to, include this on Sunday you need to say something here and sometimes um, I, I agree and sometimes I don't so mm-hmm. and and to be totally blunt sometimes I get it wrong sometimes yeah I really felt like I needed to say something and in hindsight maybe it was too early and I should have said something and I chose not to you know what I mean like so I, I'm not sitting here at all as someone who feels like he's he's batting a thousand at all which again yeah. that leads to a whole other conversation regarding uh, accountability and community and vulnerability and, and all of those things need to be included I think in in that role the other thing that's unique now is because you know hundred years ago the the pastor's megaphone a platform was happening in a very specific space and time Sundays at, at the Ooh. church building now with social media and so many other tools and resources you could be you could be a local church pastor And still have a billion followers on social media and be and be you can be spouting stuff off every five minutes if you wanted to. And some people are, which creates a whole other kind of unhealth, in my opinion, because it can it can it can make uh, important things, ultimate things. And that that when that gets out of order, I think that's problematic. But I do think that sometimes um, cowardice masks masquerades as wisdom. Does that make sense that mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm not going to I'm going to be wise. You're not saying anything like or maybe, you know, that you should and you're too afraid to. Um, and again, a lot of that comes down, I think, probably just things as simple as like personality types and just how you're wired. Yeah. Some people are like, ready for a fight. Some people want to avoid the fight at all costs. Both extreme positions are probably wrong. You, you probably shouldn't be fighting constantly, but especially as a leader, sometimes it might yeah. you might need to actually speak up. In ways that make you uncomfortable so all that to say i'm i'm trying to take it day by day <laughs> i run stuff yeah. by my wife constantly <laughs> like is this helpful would this be a good thing to and she's like i wouldn't i wouldn't if i were you I'm like okay duly noted so yeah it's uh it's a constant assessing and rechecking and like lord you know check my heart my motivation as i share this or post this or preach this i think those are those are all really important components
0: yeah, the, a couple of years ago, maybe, um, two or three years ago, something happened around the immigration debate. And I got one of those emails like, I hope you're going to address this. And I was like, Oh, maybe I better do it, you know, and I got up and I said something really sloppy, like unprepared, you know, in yeah. front of the church and got. It it just hurt the matter like it just didn't go well. So I learned a hard lesson that day of like at the very least, make sure you're prepared and you're not just talking off the cuff. But it is I I hope people understand how difficult and and I love uh, one of the questions you seem to ask almost uh, a lot of the people we had, especially on this summer or various authors when we're talking about issues of justice and issues of politics and other stuff, you always bring up, hey, a lot of people always say, just preach the gospel. And this is another yeah. one of those. I saw a bunch of tweets this week. where People are like, nope, this Sunday I'm preaching on blah, 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 blah. And it, and very like badge of honor, like I'm not tackling the, the current events of the day. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure that's always helpful. And so uh, it is kind of a case by case, but also uh, it is a, it's a fine line, and and hopefully people understand that. And if you're part of a church, uh, you you show that grace to dear your pastor. So uh, it's interesting. This is not going to get easier. Uh, it is uh, going to continue being on there. Well, speaking of churches, I uh, want to talk about this next out of the Christian Post. Churches, you become what you celebrate. Here's how. Going to talk about that article uh, next here on the Coming Good. Aim 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Common Good. AM eleven sixty, hope for your life, alongside Ian Simkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Well, at the Christian Post, uh, Sam Rayner wrote this: "Churches, you become what you celebrate." Here's how. I didn't just choose this because it's got a little bit of a list to it, but uh, we we do like <laughs> to think about uh, church. Uh, you know, kind of what's at the DNA of a church. What what kind of becomes. Uh, determines what a church becomes. And he's saying, churches, you become what you celebrate. Why don't you get us into this?
1: I would love to. It begins... With the quote from Shirley in her 70s, the service was good and the baptism was quick, but what I experienced at the party changed me. That was Shirley in her 70s, and I'll never forget her words. She came to Christ because her grandson invited her to his baptism. Shirley talked about how the entire church celebrated with her grandson after the service. It was when they brought out the birthday cake to Mm. signify his new birth that I began to cry. The church began to sing. I had never experienced such joy, and I knew that I wanted to have this joy you become what you celebrate. Whatever a church celebrates regularly will inevitably become rooted in the culture of the congregation. I think, I think that is fantastic. Not just because, like when I was at Poplar Creek for mm-hmm. those 10 years, one of the things that we would do for baptism services, and we sometimes did it in the service. Sometimes we made like a whole evening event of it. Sometimes we'd like, make it a baptism chili cook-off just for fun, <laughs> honestly. And I, I remember awesome. year, I went and bought just like a whole bunch of like noisemakers, like for parties and stuff. And as everyone kind of came in for the service, we made sure everyone had one of those, you know, like a noisemaker thing, something for the New Year's Eve or, you know, something like that. And I would explain it as I was unpacking what baptism was and say, now when we celebrate, when someone comes out of the water, we don't want golf claps. We, we want to blow the roof off this place. And they always, they would always, always, always blow my expectations. It was so much That's fun. Awesome. You could always see the expressions of people who are new, like this is nuts. But I, yeah, I, I love that introduction because I think it, it probably is the experience that a lot of people uh, have had, you know, first time seeing something like that at a church.
0: Yeah. Since day one at our church, we've always talked about uh, family, community, community, family, and, and, as those things were growing, whether it was uh, it, in any different ways, that's what we've always celebrated. And that's what we've always put our energy towards, right? Even doing old school potluck dinners and people knowing on the calendar, this is when it's going to be like, this is kind of our rhythm. Uh And it's interesting to read an article like this because we put a lot of time and energy early on in going, how are we, you know, a community? How are we tight? How are we a family? And then later when people start visiting our church and they would stay, they'd always say, yeah, you know, you're preaching. I enjoyed and the same, but man, mm-hmm. it was like being with family. It was like, and I was always like, Oh, okay. Um, and, and so I do, I think we all have, uh, seen that, but, but it, it brings to mind that, that therefore we need to be intentional about what we actually celebrate as opposed to going. Uh, all right, let me ask you this question: Have you, or could you, think of a way a negative example of this? Like you talked about celebrating celebration or fun or community baptism, these types of life change, uh, all positive things, community, family. Where are some? Can you think of any way where this would go poorly? Where you're celebrating something that's that's not really what you would want to be part of the DNA of a church?
1: Well, that's part of what he mentions here, he talks about celebrating with the community, celebrating the right things. That's the easiest one. You know, we can celebrate things that. I think are, are good, but can often have residual effects that maybe mm-hmm. are unintended. Like if you only ever celebrate giving, uh, that communicates mm. something to your community. Now, should we be celebrating the generosity of our community? Absolutely. 100, 100%. Like we need to be celebrating when, whenever that's present. Absolutely. But if it's the only thing like, wow, this church only cares about, money. Apparently, this is the only thing they ever celebrate. The other thing that he, yeah. he kind of goes on to mention too is like celebrate in the right way. Celebrate with excellence to do it with some planning in mind or to do it in a way that like honors the thing you're celebrating. Like I love at community. We call our Sunday morning services celebration services like they're that's kind of embedded in the language and, and people really pick up on that. But, you know, I don't think it necessarily needs to be. This is sort of my Achilles heel sometimes even just an in interpersonal stuff because I can't just I can't just take my wife on a date. I need to take her like on an epic date. We can't just have an anniversary <laughs> trip. It has to be an epic anniversary. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I can yeah. get too caught in the excellence piece that I can like forget to just be present. Like, oh, the fact that I'm with her is what matters most. But I think he makes some interesting points That Like, hey, if you're gonna do it, like do it well. It doesn't have to be expensive, it doesn't have to be, you know, two years of planning. But if you want something to actually convey the kind of celebration that you're hoping it will to your community then yeah doing it well doing with the right intention i think i think it was i think it's andy stanley he says what's rewarded is repeated i think this is a similar type of principle what's Mm -hmm. what's celebrated becomes culture you know there's a people will pay attention to it and even if it's not intentional what you do and maybe more more notably what you don't celebrate um I think, gets noticed more often than a lot of leaders recognize.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I do wonder from all of the many, many, many conversations going back to show number one about uh, kind of some toxic leadership and kind of, yeah. you know, seeing things just fall apart at some of the biggest churches in our area or across the country. You do wonder if this concept is at play there on the negative side, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, that these uh, in these organizations these churches over time celebrated uh, the giftings of one person or the uh, you know the preaching of one person or the uh, mm-hmm. charisma of one person and and because that celebrated you have to keep that going until it crashes and yeah. you know we don't need to rehash the ones who you know how they have crashed how would you say maybe a pastor is listening or just somebody, uh, this is also true for families, by the way, right? Like what you celebrate yeah. in your family. Uh, and so how do you get intentional about this? You talked about it doesn't need to be uh, it, it can be done with excellence, but does not need to be just a blowout? But, but think about in your church settings, whether it be at Poplar or community, wherever you've been, how, how does celebrating and thinking that through actually take some intentionality? How do you do that well?
1: Well, I'm so glad that you asked, Brian, and I promise this isn't a setup. The book I'm reading right now is actually another by uh, Dr. Jim Wilder. If you remember, Uh Jim Wilder is a neurotheologian and is living the life I want to live. He wrote a book with Marcus Warner called Rare Leadership for Uncommon, Uncommon Habits for Increasing Trust, Joy, and Engagement in the People You Lead. It's a long title, but essentially the the thesis though is that joy is actually like the central driver, neurologically speaking, socially speaking for, uh, not only cohesion and unity, but also like performance. It's such a fascinating book. And hmm. I've never read anything like this that he's like, there's all sorts of other, you know, previous schools of thought and we, we're learning so much more about the brain, but he, they, they both just keep coming back to you, like, man, a team without joy or a community without joy. And I think joy and celebration definitely go hand in hand when, when that's, lost you may get people that comply or obey or even still execute but you you're not gonna you're not gonna achieve the kind of like level of like um belonging and identity and purpose that most particularly pastors really want for their teams in That's the community right. i would highly highly recommend checking out this little book it's great what's it called again it's called rare leadership
0: okay by jim wilder i will mm-hmm. check that out it's that so sounds good. like a good one uh Anyway, would love to know what you think about that, this idea of celebrating, celebrating in churches, but also families and the importance of it. Well, coming up next, uh, friend of the show, Scott Sauls wrote this, the potential perils of self-esteem. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today. One of the guys that we read and we've had on multiple times somebody that we've talked a lot about and with is Scott Saul Scott Saul's uh, pastor of let's see if I get this right is it is it Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville did I get that right yeah sure I think I got that right Christ Presbyterian Church we'll look that up right there oh there it is I see it right there in his bio senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville uh, Tennessee Written several books, all of which I've read and I think are phenomenal. So anyway, big fan of Scott Sauls. So well, he wrote at his blog, but this was picked up by churchleaders.com, called this The Potential Perils of Self. And then after self, he in parentheses, wrote IE for selfie, esteem, The Potential Perils of Self-Esteem. Ian, what a friend of the show, Scott Saul's, had to say here.
1: Well, I'm going to say something, Brian, and I need you to hear this with the right spirit in mind. I've never I'm felt ready. more affirmed in my entire life because like five or six years ago, I wrote a blog called the problems of selfie esteem. Did and, you really? Uh, I did. Yeah. I'm going to have to see if I can, if I can dig that up. Eh, it might've been even longer. Cause I think it was in 2013. Selfie was actually Miriam Webster's one of, one of their words of the year. And I saw that. And no I way. Like, Oh yeah, we're done as a culture. That's it. Game over. We're done. It's uh, it's a word of the year. How did, that, how did that ever happen? So either way, that's that's my little we, seeing this title made me really happy. Do we think there's a
0: chance that Saul's read that blog post of a young Ian Simpkins back then? And I do not. It, may,
1: it no. may have stuck in the recesses of his mind, and that's where this came from. I doubt that entirely, thoroughly, <laughs> and passionately. Yeah. No, no okay. Just All wanted right. to check. Do you want me to, uh, me to get us into it? I do. I do. He says, the hunt for self-esteem is everywhere. Advice on how to achieve it can be found in parenting articles, business coaching, and the self-help section of every bookstore. Some of you might be wondering, wait a minute, there's such a thing as a bookstore? Yeah, there used to be a <laughs> physical place where books were kept that people would go to buy them. I so, love bookstores. Yeah, I, love I, do, I do too. According to the Harvard Business Review, quote, self-esteem is considered the bedrock of individual success. You can't possibly get ahead in life. logic goes, unless you believe that you are perfectly awesome, yet (laughs) there's an underbelly to the hunt for self-esteem because it presses us to compare ourselves to others. And when we compare ourselves to others, it sets us up for pride and pride goes before a fall and a fall wrecks self-esteem. And there you have it. And I'll quote C.S. Lewis here because I think, I mean, why not? In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Hmm. Then he goes on to say, the Pharisee prayed in Luke 18, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Tellingly, he mentions himself five times and God only once. In the original Greek, the text says he is praying to himself, not to God. Belittling and taking sides against others becomes his self-saving strategy. His prideful boasting ironically and tragically is a frenzied attempt to medicate a deep insecurity within it is his best Mm -hmm. attempt to rescue a fragile self image. This is again, a great example of why I just think Saul's is worth reading and worth following. Mm -hmm. He has Mm -hmm. just a one. He's just a great writer 2 He's got a depth of insight that you don't, you don't see a lot like in, twitter and facebook anymore and i think what he's saying here um i imagine even just that little bit that i read people are already thinking potentially of like like real-time current cultural moments where this could apply but he doesn't necessarily like quite steer you there he's, he's sort of letting the reader decide like oh am i speaking to this or to you and so this is you over yes. there to that conversation uh-huh. i just think i just think that's so winsome i think that's really wise of him
0: yeah, he goes on to say comparing ourselves to others is a dead end street. As Teddy Roosevelt aptly said, comparison is the thief to joy. So why do we continue to diminish our neighbor as a way to build ourselves up? Why do we take sides and engage in us against them conversations? Why do we feel this need? Uh, he, he's so right there, man. I don't we talk about this all the time, but I, I personally struggle with comparison. I struggle with comparison as a pastor. Like, oh, that church is bigger. They're doing better things. He or she's a better preacher than me, whatever else it might be, as opposed to being like, man, this is so, I love my flock. I love my people. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited for what that church is doing and what that church is doing. Comparison as a pastor is a real, real thing. And it really kind of can tear away at your soul. I struggle with comparison as a, as a dad, like, Oh man, look at that guy over there. look what he 's doing with his kid. Look at that his intentionality. look at this uh, financial comparison like oh man, I wish I had that house up the street, whatever else it might be uh, comparison I think it 's so right and i, and I yeah I, the the idea that comparison steals our joy uh, is and it just keeps you there 's always somebody with more money, bigger house more well behaved kids, bigger church, whatever else it will be so you 're going to find something that you don 't measure up to. Uh, this idea that comparison is a is steals your joy is something that I believe fully, and I really struggle with at the same time.
1: All right, let me ask you something that might be a little controversial. Then, is there a place where comparison can be really helpful?
0: I think yes. The answer to that is yes. Think about uh, a uh, you know an Olympic athlete; they have to compare themselves to their competition, right? Okay, that guy ran ran that race in 10 seconds, I gotta get to 959, right? I gotta do this. But like or out as a but outside also of as competition a pastor, though.
1: Outside of competition yeah. though, can it can not be helpful.
0: You know, I think there is something about competitiveness or comparison, like even as a pastor, that can drive you to work harder and more, but but it's gotta be done from the right spirit. And that's where I struggle with sometimes as opposed to Honestly, man, sometimes I'll look at the bigger church or the guy who's doing whatever else that I wish I could do. And my first inclination is like, uh, is how can I tear them down? Probably not publicly. Mm. I don't have that in me, but it's in my own mind. Instead of like, hey, I should go meet with them and encourage them, but also mm. hear from them and maybe learn from them. And, and then that could make me a better pastor or a better dad or whatever mm. else. I think it requires. This is a little bit what he's getting at. I think it requires a good amount of, um, uh, of, of uh, you know, self-esteem is not the right word, but it requires you to be secure in yourself and in your identity in Christ uh, to be able to uh, learn from another person who might be doing, quote unquote, doing it better than you are. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I think if, if you don't have that security, I think comparison can really wreak havoc on
1: you. All right. So I want to I want to press you a little bit on that because you said a phrase back there, you said, as long as it's done from the right spirit, What what is the right spirit and how, how do you actually get there?
0: That's a, your, your guess is as good as mine. I'm hoping Saul's <laughs> has the answer here. Uh, I think it's what I started to get at later after, like having that security and and we preach this message all the time, right? We preach about, uh, I'm a child of God. Nothing else can give me more importance. I'm deeply loved by God in Jesus Christ. Nothing can give me greater uh, you know, uh, affirmation, whatever else, God knows me more than I even know myself, these types of things. If I truly live those out, that's kind of what I mean by the right spirit. Then I can in confidence go, Hey, Ian, man, I think you're killing it at your church, man. I'd right. love to just sit down with you and hear what you're doing, because I would actually, uh, I could use some ideas. I could use mm. some prayer. I could use just some of your wisdom. And then you go no way, man. I don't want to see your church succeed. <laughs> like, right, I, I want to kind of be right. territorial. No, instead you go and yeah, man, I want you to succeed as well. Let's get together and talk. I think that's what I mean by right spirit as opposed to, gosh, I can't handle Ian. He's His church is bigger than mine. People are calling him a great preacher. They don't really say that about, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, right.
0: And so how do we get there? I think it's the sermon we've all preached, but it's hard to live out. Like, Who are we in Christ and actually living out of that? It just becomes easier said than done. Uh, I'll spend it on you. And I know we're running out of time, but how would you answer that question? What is it? How do we actually live this stuff out? Yeah,
1: I don't. I mean, I probably push back a little bit and say, I don't know that it's the sermon that we've all preached to be totally uh-huh. blunt. I, I feel like to some degree, maybe we've said those words, but struggle to actually give people tools and resources. To live it out, and I think it is. I think it does have to be more than just simply hearing somebody with a microphone tell it to you. I think it also has to be more than just simply. I'm gonna like New Year's resolutions. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna be Mm -hmm. more fit. I'm just gonna do it. You're like, well, I think. I think there's probably some some language of spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. You don't just one day wake up like, all right. I don't care yeah. about anyone else's salary or church or success. I'm just resting in what that preacher told me yesterday. You're like, no, it's, it's
0: a day. <laughs> They all do it's, that, right? After we preach, they no, all do that, right? No, <laughs> no, they really do. Like the phrase Saul
1: used here, he says, our souls are glory vacuums. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's really, really important to remember. And the only way to counter that is probably um, be more intentional about like the things that are forming us. And to yes. be mindful of that is that takes a lifetime of work, I think.
0: Yeah, he says in Jesus, we no longer have anything to fear, provide or hide or Mm -hmm. sorry, not provide fear, prove or hide. Uh, There's no need to compare or compete. There's no need to wear ourselves down by chasing career applause or respect or being able to fit into a size four. We're not called to be perfectly awesome. And so those are great words. And as Ian just said so well, uh, easy to read, easy to hear, hard to live out. And so hopefully we can continue that conversation and continue uh, pushing in. That's Scott Sauls. You can read that up on our Facebook page. We'd encourage you to do so. Well, the first hour is in the book. Next hour, we're going to have Tim Muhlhoff join us for two segments. But next, we're going to ask this from Tish Harrison Warren. We worship with the Magi, not MAGA. That out of Christianity Today. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for Coming up this hour, we're going to read an article from Tish Harrison Warren and another one from Andy Stanley, and then be joined by Tim Muhlhoff, professor of communication at Biola University. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, we're thrilled to have you joining us, and as I said, uh, here in about 10 or 15 minutes. Tim Mulehoff is going to join us from the Win- Winsome Conviction Project. He's also a uh, professor at Biola University. As we continue to talk about uh, what's it look like to have civility? What's it look like? What does unity look like? What is that work that that's going to take? So we're Tim's been on the show before, but we're excited to have him back again. But speaking of people who've been on the show before, Tish Harrison Warren, she's been on a few times. She wrote at Christianity Today a couple days ago. Uh, right after uh, all that happened at the Capitol last Wednesday, she wrote this. We worship with the Magi, not MAGA. Epiphany reminds us that faith is not a prop for political power. And Ian, the other day you talked about the, I don't know if irony is the right word, just the strangeness that that riot and everything, the unrest and the insurrection happened on Epiphany. Uh, and that's kind mm-hmm. of where Tish Harrison Warren uh, takes us. So why don't you jump into this article that she wrote at Christianity Today?
1: Here we go. She writes, Wednesday, January 6th was the Feast of Epiphany, when Christians celebrate how the light of Christ spreads to all nations. The season of Epiphany, also called Theophany in the East, focuses on Jesus' revelation of his true identity to all the world. In the West, it centers on the stories of the Magi who represent the nations or the Gentiles finding Jesus through their mysterious stargazing. In the weeks ahead, the Epiphany season recalls the baptism of Christ and the wedding at Cana, Jesus' first miracle. What a strange epiphany we had in the United States. Instead of magi worshiping a newborn king, MAGA hats descended on our nation's capital. Instead of the baptism of Christ announcing his true identity, men and women held signs proclaiming Jesus saves as they demanded to overturn an election. Instead of a miraculous display of love at a wedding feast, we saw a display of political violence. Epiphany calls us to light and truth, it reminds us that the promise of Isaiah is fulfilled in Christ. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That's from Isaiah 63. Light is beautiful and is also revelatory. The word epiphany comes from the word reveal and gestures gestures toward realization of the truth. To have an epiphany is to grasp reality, to receive insight. In these gospel stories, followers of Jesus begin to slowly understand who he actually is. They glimpse the truth. The light of the world has come to all people and all ethnic groups. The season of Epiphany reminds us that we do not just receive the light of Christ. We are charged with sharing it with all the world. But if the nations are watching recent events in D.C. as people destabilize democracy while carrying flags that read Make America Godly Again, would any onlooker want anything to do with this Christ? I'll just read one more short paragraph. The violence wrought by Trump supporters storming the Capitol is anti-epiphany. It is dark and based in untruth. The symbols of faith, Jesus' name, cross, and message have been co-opted to serve the cultish end of Trumpism. I was trying to think of like a clever question to ask you, Brian, after reading that, but I'm just going to ask you what you think.
0: I, I love, I didn't grow up with the church calendar, right? You and I've talked about that many times. So people who have, and who write on it, it it does just, uh, it does just open up so much. This idea that, that, uh, you know, epiphany is about light and truth. And then her reminding us that we as Christ followers are to be light in the world, right? Like we are about light and truth and, and, uh, putting that over what we all watched last Wednesday. And I don't know how much you've watched. I've had to just stop a little bit, but that as more video footage comes out from inside the Capitol uh, and the stories come out and you realize just it, there's no better way to talk about. I think what happened last Wednesday as just darkness, it was just dark. Uh, hmm. and, and then juxtaposing that epiphany. And as Chris, Harris, we are to be the light and truth, man, I I think uh, understanding uh, epiphany and understanding that the idea of light and truth, uh, and as I said, juxtaposing it against what we saw last week, and then adding on the fact that so many people who were who were carrying out that darkness seem to be doing so, as she said, with symbols of our faith, Jesus's name, his cross, his message, uh, really, it, it just it, it raises again, uh, one of the many reasons as to why that was so hard to watch last week and why it was so unsettling and, and angering. Uh, but it also just reminds us how important it is that we take up our call uh, and, and uh, who Jesus calls us to be, to be, the, to be the lights in a world of darkness. So let me, let me
1: read a paragraph that I think you'll have some thoughts about. Uh, she writes, an emaciated and malformed evangelical political theology got us where we are now. Jeffrey Goldberg describes the insurrection of the Capitol as, quote, chaos rooted in psychological and theological phenomena intensified by eschatological anxiety. He tells how one protester told him, it's all in the Bible. Everything is predicted. Donald Trump is in the Bible. Goldberg continues, quote, the conflation of Trump and Jesus was a common theme at the rally. Quote, give it up if you believe in Jesus. A man yelled near me. People cheered. Give it up if you believe in Donald Trump. What do you think of that sort of display? Like, What is the the counter argument, I guess? I'm trying to get in the head of someone, uh, not just someone. Uh, a Christ follower who, who saw this, maybe let's say they watched all the same videos you did and said, yep. Yeah. Necessary. Not only necessary, um, Jesus approved stamp (laughs) of the Bible. I'm not only okay with it. It's not a sort of like, ah, it's not how I would have done it, but I, I, I see why it was necessary, but like just a full throated, yes, this, this is what needed to happen. And I'm a, a person of Christian faith. Um, Can you can you make that case for me? Could you could you speak from that position?
0: I can't like you and I I think do actually do a good job as you were doing that. You you and I both kind of put each other in positions of going, hey, speak. Even if you don't believe this, go for it. And we try to do it. I maybe you do. Maybe you're able to do that. What you just asked there. I I don't see it. I don't see. And now I will. I want to be very careful about the painting with a broad brush of evangelicalism. Every every Christian I know that is that I'm connected with. Uh, was equally as maybe not equally but was disturbed by what happened last week. I think yeah. this was uh a a certainly a fringe thing but it was still bathed in in Jesus language and bathed, bathed in the cross and uh I I I I'll turn the question on you cuz honestly man when you were doing that I was like okay I'm I'm going to be up for this. I'm going to be able to do this. I'm I'm going to be able to figure out I can't think of it. I think it's uh I think it's heresy. I think it's idolatry. I think it's uh uh, yeah, I can't do it. How about you? What am I missing here? Where, what is the argument?
1: I, I don't I don't know what the argument is. I think <laughs> not I, I've not heard a lot of evangelicals in my tiny, tiny, tiny corner of the universe defend it. I, I've heard a number of people say I could see how we got here mm-hmm. um, or maybe more pointedly. I can understand where they're coming from, you know, why it eventually bubbled over into something like this um but i i can't say and maybe that's a that's evidence of my own echo chambers my own confirmation bias like my, maybe maybe there aren't enough close people in my life that can or have articulated what what really was going on there from that perspective but yeah i think you even to the point yesterday you know where we were reading that article from David French where he kept referring to it as a christian insurrection i was like i'm not i'm not sure that that's entirely christian to to yeah. be totally frank and that's that i mean we, we could we could certainly debate that, too. But uh, no, I, I don't I don't know that I have a lot of insight there. And I, I sort of wish that I did.
0: Oh, it makes me feel good that we don't. <laughs> I yeah. do. And this is a, it's a provocative article. Maybe you're out there going. You guys are wrong. Well, go give this article a read and see what you think. Uh, She does go on to say at the end, we have to take up the slow work of repair, of reforming our churches around the deep, unchanging truths of the light of Christ. We must reconstruct communities where we can know and speak truth, serve the needy and the poor, love our neighbors, uh, learn to be poor in spirit, rejoice in suffering and witness to the light of Christ amid darkness. Tish Harrison Warren. Uh, you can read that up at our Facebook page. Coming up next, Tim uh professor of communication at Biola University and also one of the co-directors of the Winsome Conviction Project. He's going to come on for the next two segments to join us here on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm, glad to have you joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined for the second time. Uh, He was on a few weeks ago, but we are uh, excited to be joined again by Tim Muhlhoff. Tim, thanks so much for coming back on and joining us again. Boy, my pleasure to be with you guys. It's our pleasure for sure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like.
2: Yeah, I'm a professor of communication at Biola University in La Mirada, California. And uh, I'm the co-director of a brand new five-year project called the Winsome Conviction Project, a fully funded um, enterprise seeking to reintroduce compassion and civility back into our disagreements between Christians and between Christians and non-Christians. So let me just say, business is good. <laughs> so, uh, <yeah. laughs> and I just have a brand new book out uh, called Winsome Conviction disagreeing without dividing the church Mm. uh, from intervarsity press co-written with the other director of the winsome conviction project rick langer
1: see tim it's uh it's unfortunate that your book and topic isn't relevant at all today (laughs) but i'm assuming sometime in the future maybe we could actually reference this podcast no i i'm having a hard time even imagining a time in my adult life where a work like yours could be more timely and more needed winsome conviction disagreeing without dividing the church what do you say to the person and I, I feel like i see a lot of this on social media right now that to disagree means you're complicit with the enemy end of discussion shut it down like it it does feel like there's a lot of i'm on both sides or every side oh here's my conviction and if you disagree with me um, it's not just that we have a healthy disagreement, it's that you're the enemy, mm-hmm. you're working with Satan, you're deceived. How how do you help people engage beyond the, that type of rhetoric?
2: Yeah, you know, we're, we're in real danger as a country, and I think people feel that today at a visceral mm-hmm. level. Uh, a study just came out that 98% of Americans would say that incivility is a problem in our country. And 68% would say it has reached crisis levels. Wow! And so in a time in which Americans don't seem to agree on anything, we sure agree that incivility is mm. really hurting our ability to communicate. So I I think we're seeing a groundswell of the middle of America. And that's what I think we need to refocus on is what James Davison Hunter, a sociologist says, is the forgotten middle of America, hmm, hmm. where we need to engage each other. And I will, I will agree that there's the far right, the far left hmm. that is not open to discussion. And if you don't agree with me, I demonize you. But I think there's a middle America hmm. that we still can focus on. And I have hopes that the middle America, we can have some hard but good conversation.
0: Yeah, I want to jump off there too. Uh, A lot of times, myself included, when you hear the word civility, um, you kind of think, well, then we don't ever say anything hard to each other, or we don't, you know, we just kind of live on a surface level and make sure everybody's getting along. Could you help us better understand when you use the word civility, uh, what exactly you're talking about?
2: Well, there's two uh, parts of communication, not just one. We tend to think that communication is just my content. It's my beliefs, my Mm. convictions, biblical or whatever. But the other part is the relational level of communication. And that is the level of respect, the level of acknowledgement, and the level of compassion. So Mm. for us, civility means, listen, my content is my content. I have very strong beliefs, but I'm going to protect the relational level. It's what Paul says, right? I'm going to speak the truth, content, but I'm going to do it in love which is relational. I think today we're seeing a crisis on the relational Mm. level is what the argument culture is today. So the winsome conviction project, we're trying to revive the relational level. I can respect you even as I really disagree with you. That's Mm. what I mean by civility.
1: So I think of the the Samuel Johnson quote, which goes something like kindness is in our power, even when fondness is not Mm -hmm. that the notion that I have to like really, really even like you in order for me to be kind. And if I don't like you, then I don't have to be kind. But we also know that, you know, so much of communication is nonverbal. And, you know, during COVID, we've lost a, a good percentage of our, our capacity to perceive nonverbal communication. How, how big a role do you think COVID kind of coupled with social media and digital communication has, I don't know, contributed to some of what we're seeing with this kind of rising temperature in America? Hmm.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, COVID's been a gift for, non, uh, for non-verbal communication scholars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, wearing that mask really throws me. Mm. Like, mm. it's really hard to read a person, and they don't know I'm smiling. And, and, and so those cues, we're losing some of those cues when we're right. talking to each other with masks on. But, but we have got to reclaim this idea that we are Americans. We've got to claim the idea that we are a nation of people and that our communities are incredibly important to us, and we need to protect those at all costs. And this is where Christians get upset with me a little bit. So <laughs> let me just say this, and I'll strike Chicago from a place I'm ever gonna go visit. Um, <laughs> so, I, my neighbors need to know that I am primarily their neighbor. Mm. Second, I'm a Christian. Mm. See, I say to my students, listen, if I were to say to you, here is the second most important thing I'm going to say all semester, how many of you would write it down? And they all raise their hand. I go, okay, here's the second greatest commandment Jesus gave, uh, neighbor love, love your neighbor as yourself, because they won't care about my Christianity until I firmly establish I am a neighbor to everybody. I don't care mm. your sexual preference. I don't care your political preference. We are neighbors and neighbors stick with each other through mm. thick and thin. And today we're so fractioned and we're in different tribes that, that we've lost this neighborliness. And I think, I think if we're really going to make a difference, mm. we need to go back to, hey, we need to link arms and work through this Because our neighborhood's at stake, our country's at stake. And I I pray for President Biden Mm. that that this unifying tone he's taking in the beginning of his presidency really is from the heart. Mm. And that he's going to be a president for all Americans. Mm. But but we need to recapture what Robert Bella called the front porch attitude of America. Is that we sit on our front porches and we weather things out together. And I think that's what we're losing today as Americans.
0: And I love that phrase recapture. How do you think we lost it? What do you blame? Where do you, where do you think we, we kind of went off course that caused us to be where we are now?
2: Well, here's my quick answer to that is 1960s, Janice came up with a term called groupthink. Mm. And it has now saturated our thinking about communication. So we have a whole chapter in the book on groupthink. So here's what I think happens. You become part of a group that over time becomes isolated. Thus, stereotypes you have of, of other people no longer get challenged, right? Mm-hmm. When we all bash the Republicans. We all bash the Democrats. We're all Calvinists. We're all Arminians. And you don't let any outside influence into your group. Thus, it's groupthink. So, so right. then you become isolated from other people. And my group is good. We're powerful. We don't need other people so I think um, the groups we belong to
0: can really do damage to unity. Uh, that other voice here is Tim Muehlhoff, uh professor of communication at Biola University. Uh, also, uh, author and uh, co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. You can find him at com. Uh, that's uh, M-U-E-H-L-H-O-F-F. Did I get that right? I think I put in one too many you H's did. there. I got you it right. Did. Okay, good. <laughs> because <Beautiful. laughs> we want people to go there. We are thrilled Tim is going to join us for yet another segment as we continue to talk about this. And also, how do we do this? How do we do unity right in the church? We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to be joined for a second segment by Tim Muehlhoff, professor of communication at Biola University, also the co director of the Winsome Conviction Project. Uh, thrilled to have you with us for another segment. You, you, in your book, you talk about Christian unity and you, you very much say Christian unity is possible. Ian and I yesterday were discussing Kind of the difficult work to even kind of get to unity. That that's there's a lot of steps to get there. Well, How would you I, I, define Christian unity? And and when you say it's possible, what kind of work do you think that'll take?
2: Well, remember what Paul says. Paul says, "Protect unity at all costs." Mm-hmm. And I think we need to. I think we need to remember that. Here's what makes. Here's what makes disagreements among Christians so difficult. Is this phrase, "Thus saith the Lord." Mm-hmm. So mm. when we have a a, a a disagreement with a fellow church member, I say the Bible says this. Mm. And then you say, "Well, no, 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 actually the Bible says this." And so then we're stuck, right?
1: Right. So right. what we
2: have to do is what Paul does in Romans chapter 14. Paul does this. He's got Jewish and and Gentile believers and he brings up days and diets. Now, listen, for a Jewish community, there's nothing there's nothing more controversial than a a group of fellow Christians who aren't going to observe days and diets? Are you kidding? Mm. That's the hallmark of my faith. So Paul says, I want you to view that as a disputable matter, which means good Christians can disagree with each other on this issue, right? You can be divided on this issue, but remember, he says, protect unity at all costs. So I think the central feature we need to reclaim is humility, Mm. which means, listen, You could be wrong on this issue. Now, let let me just give a quick illustration. I am a diehard Arminian. Mm -hmm. I am Arminian. I believe in free will. I believe that God allows evil to happen. He doesn't cause it. I believe we're free in our choices. And I will go to bat for that every day of the week, and I'll debate anybody. But Hmm. I know enough to know the quality of professors at Biola University who are Calvinists, who believe that God is ordaining everything, right? We're talking about Luther. We're talking about Calvin, John Mm -hmm. Owen, right? Uh, That's why I go to bed with a a C.S. Lewis book under my pillow every (laughs) night. (laughs) But listen, I absolutely think I'm right on this issue, right? But I need enough humility to know, John, Calvin, my goodness, Luther, So I need to just be a little bit humble to think, Mm -hmm. okay, this is not going to divide us, Hmm. because both of us have really good evidence for this. So I think this is what Paul would say, this is a disputable matter, and you're going to have to answer to the Lord, both of you, on this issue, but don't let this divide you.
1: One of the uh, conflict norms that we developed as a church, actually, I guess it was February, right before COVID really hit hard, was, um, it reads something like, fight like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. It's, it's, it's right. Have, have those convictions and, and be forthright in them. And then also turn your mouth off like you might actually be wrong. And I, I found a, a quote of yours to, to just be absolutely fascinating, and I imagine maybe even controversial for some. So, the goal of our convictions is to guide our own conduct so that it's pleasing to Jesus, not to guide the conduct of others. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I, I think that is the key to, to a lot of what we're talking about today.
2: Okay, so I'm a huge social justice person. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that social justice is the DNA of the church. And I, I am so passionate about this. I do not like calling it biblical justice. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had many disagreements with Bible faculty at Biola on this issue because I want, I want it. Social justice is a place where we can connect with outsiders. Mm-hmm. It, it is an issue that, that, that we can find a common ground on. But I get that there is concern about social justice warriors and all that kind of stuff. So some of my colleagues are wanting to call it biblical justice. But it's like, no, we're missing the connection point Hmm. when we call it biblical justice. So uh, uh, we have a robust disagreement on this. Now, I, I think they believe in their form of social justice. They just don't want to call it that. Right. So yeah. I really think for the betterment of Biola University, we should call it social justice, call it biblical social justice. But you know what <laughs> a crazy thing is, Ian Brian, <laughs> I am not in charge of Biola University. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I think that's a huge tactical mistake. I, at the end of the day, I know you're going to find this hard to believe. There are people who disagree with me and I don't call the shots. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I need to be humble enough Mm. to say to the president of Biola University, here is my counsel and I believe strongly in what I'm advocating, but I will submit to all the dynamics you have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And in a very recent essay that he published, he called it biblical justice. Mm, wow! Mm. I now teach at Azusa University, I'm <laughs> <laughs> but to me, that's the humility part, mm-hmm. right? Is uh, I, I, I gave him my best shot, man. I did, and mm. I still believe I'm right, and that this is a mistake. But Barry's a good man. He is a God-fearing man. Yeah. And he, he, he deals with things I don't even know he deals with. I honestly right. don't. Yeah. And that that's where I think the humility part comes in. Now, by the way, Paul is also saying there are those handful of convictions that split the church. Mm-hmm. Right. This is C.S. Lewis's beautiful metaphor of the hallway of faith, right? So the mm. hallway of faith to me is salvation in Christ alone, bodily resurrection, um the Trinity, uh, you, you know, insp- um, inerrancy, inspiration. That's the hallway. But rooms off the hallway we can be passionate about. That that's where I would put Arminianism, Calvinism, egalitarianism, complementarianism. I'd put eschatological things mm-hmm. as rooms mm-hmm. off the hallway. Not that they don't matter. Oh my gosh, they're incredibly important. Mm-hmm. But right. that's where Christians are really going to disagree with each other. And we need to allow as much as possible for that disagreement. Um, to be there. But so, so I couldn't attend a church that had a, a strong Calvinist senior pastor. Mm. I, I just couldn't do it be, mm. because that's not how I understand God. And I think I'd just be frustrated day in and day out. Right. Mm. So I, you can't ask the senior pastor to change his theological convictions. Right. Mm-hmm. So that might not be the best. Or, or I once stayed at a free Methodist church uh, who believed you could lose your salvation because of the dynamic evangelism program that they had. And I could set that aside mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the church was doing such great work.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Tim, with the last you know, two minutes or so that we have, uh, you, you talk about Christian unity being possible. If the church... Let's, let's wave a magic wand and say the next five years or 10 years, however long, the church kind of turns a corner and does this well. Could you paint a picture for what the result of that be? Ask it another way. What's the opportunity before the church right now in such a divided world?
2: Oh, I love it. The opportunity is, uh, remember, 98% of Americans believe incivility is a problem. Mm. And so if the church rose up and we were convicted, but absolutely committed to what Peter says in first Peter, right? He says, when insulted, I do not want you to give an insult. I want you to give a blessing instead. Mm-hmm. If the church was unified on the relational level, even as we disagree with outsiders and insiders, we're going to be compassionate. We're going to be respectful and we're going to acknowledge each other's positions. Even if we disagree with each other, I think a country that is literally starving for civility, We'll take a look at the church and say, man, they somehow pull it off. Mm. They don't get into the mud like everybody else. They mm. are they are civil people that I really disagree with, but I appreciate their communication approach.
1: Gosh, that's so good. Tim, a really, really timeful work. I would love for people to know where they can learn more about you and your podcast and your book. So could you hit us with all the websites, social media stuff that you have?
2: Yeah, great. Um so, the, um, our website is called winsomeconviction.com, and you can go there. We have a ton of resources, blogs, interviews, and then uh, listen to our podcast, Winsome Conviction Podcast. Uh, and then if you think I should be running Biola University, <laughs> just send your emails directly to Biola and say, hey, you think Muehlhoff should be the top guy? Uh,
0: <laughs> we'll get on that right now. <laughs> Perfect. As
2: the spirit leads.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, well, Tim, again, Tim Muehlhoff is a professor of communications at Biola University, soon to be president, as he said. And, uh <laughs> Also part of winsome (laughs) conviction. Tim, uh, second time he's been on. We're really grateful, man. Thanks again for coming on The Common Good today. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. It's the time of the show that everyone's excited for, not because the show is ending. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, they are excited, Ian. I think everybody's excited to know what the holidays of today are. And Ian, you always are able to tell us. So what are the holidays? What state is, is celebrating itself today? I mean, you
1: you make it sound like the capacity to tell you what the holidays are is special <laughs> and unique to me. Like it everyone is, with is. a smartphone, you could just literally ask Siri what holidays are today. But I'm I'm here to help out. I don't even know that I could call this helping. I'm sure it's not helping. Um, But yeah, I got there's some good ones. Did you want to take any guesses? Any predictions for today? I I think today's probably National S'more Day. Wow. Wow. You are just you are going to there's not (laughs) why would it be S'more day in January? They're going to at least put it in fall, right? If it exists, it's going to be in
0: fall. No, uh, it's National Scrabble Day today, I believe.
1: Scrabble. Okay. So sticking with the S words, I, I see how your brain works. It's also not okay. that. No, it is. Uh, it's shop for travel day.
0: Shop for travel. Okay. I'd like to travel. <laughs> I miss traveling. Just just not
1: avocados. <laughs> All right. Um, no. National Marzipan Day.
0: Do I admit that I don't know what that was? Oh,
1: you know what Marzipan is. Stop. What is it? Good. Just Google it. Just Google it. You can okay, do it. Keep going. Uh, National Curried Chicken Day. Okay. Marzipan. <laughs> I lost you. Okay. I, you're not <laughs> even going to be. No, oh, yeah. Do you have an opinion of <laughs> curried chicken? Yay or nay?
0: Uh, yeah, I like curried
1: chicken. I, I'm a yay on that one. <laughs> I'm a yay. Just the most haphazard yay. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I can do curried chicken. Uh, Nat, marzipan okay. is a confection consisting primarily of sugar or honey and almond meal. Huh? Okay. I, it I, looks I, yummy. I still don't recognize it.
1: I could tell that you were reading because you didn't laugh at what I just said. And I, I knew that you were distracted. I could just tell <laughs> by your lack of response. Like, oh, he's about to read me something. My apologies.
0: Uh, there, you know, when you Google something, it says people also ask. It says people also ask, why is marzipan so gross? <laughs> <laughs> well. I mean, it's better than Turkish
1: delight. You ever had Turkish delight?
0: I haven't. Though I've heard it's gross. I've heard it's, it's, gross.
1: it's no bueno. I, I mean, in, to my particular palate, I don't love it. That's just that's just me. Okay. okay. So it's National Pharmacist Day, so that's okay. potentially controversial, I guess. And then, last but not least, what? are you ready?
0: Controversial?
1: Well, I mean, big pharma. That's a that's a hot button okay. topic, isn't it? No, it is. Yes, raise a glass. For national kiss a ginger day.
0: <laughs> nice. Probably not. You're probably okay. not
1: supposed to do it during a pandemic just in general.
0: No, you are not. Oh, you are not. So, okay. Those mm. are some random. No state holidays today. That's a first in a while.
1: <laughs> I knew I knew you were going to have to bring that up again. You just have a a real chip off the old block for the state holiday thing, don't you? No, not chip off the old block, so right chip at- on your shoulder. That's the chip. That's the chip <laughs> analogy I was looking for. My, da- My
0: dad's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> chip off the old block. <laughs> I knew it was wrong. as the moment. Uh, that Andy's- there you go. Andy Stanley wrote actually at Fox News on ja- uh, January the 3rd. So right after the new year, he wrote an opinion piece entitled Reset Your Life by Asking Yourself This One Question. He says, you can decide today who you want to be and your future decisions can flow out of that vision. So, you know, we try to end with uh, uh, something a little more inspirational, kind of good news. Uh, And so Andy Stanley uh, kind of leaves us with that here at Fox News. Let me read some of this. He said, I've never been happier to ring in a new year. Finally, 2020 is behind us. The presidential election is over. Distribution of vaccines has begun. After a year of trauma, upheaval and challenge, a brand new year is the next best thing to a reset button. he did he did write this yeah, on was,
1: january 3rd it is worth noting that oh that's a very good point
0: that's amazing little
1: did you know andy
0: that's a very valid point he's he just a, he wrote a second one just said my bad, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. My bad. follow-up <laughs> report for fox news never mind never mind i will we'll can't wait till 2022 <laughs> Uh, he said, maybe you've jotted down a full a few resolutions. Good for you, he said. Or you may be thinking, why bother? It may be that 2020 isn't any better and is out of con- my control anyway. There you go. Before you go down either of these trails, may I make a suggestion? Take time to ask yourself a simple question. What story do I want to tell? Mm. Though we've probably never met. Here's something I know about you. You would like to be able to tell your entire story without skipping any chapters Or having to lie about the details. We all want that. And going forward, you can have that. But it will require you to stop mid-decision and ask, what story do I want to tell? The decisions you're in the middle of making right now are going to be reduced to a story you tell. Once it's behind you, like in 2020, it's a story. But the rest of your life is a story waiting to be written. And you will create that story one decision at a time. He goes talking about losing your job and how that would make a story. And so let me just go down towards the end. He says, the decisions you make in the valleys are eventually just stories you tell on the other side. Which of the available options do you want to be part of your story? The primary reason we don't think uh, in terms of a story when making decisions is that the story comes later. Decisions are now. We think about the future Later, as in later, when it's too late to do anything Mm -hmm. about it, we don't think in terms of story because we're distracted by the pressure and emotions we feel in the moment. Let me pause there in classic Andy Stanley, but uh, that's a great way to frame it. I think I've not really heard it that way, but what kind of what story instead of what decision do I want to make in this moment? Kind of thinking a little bigger. What story do I want to tell? I, I really do find that pretty helpful. Uh, it's
1: terrible. I, Andy
0: Stanley <laughs>
1: should never never write again. I don't even know why he tries. Andy Stanley. Uh, no, I, I think part of what he's getting at, too, that makes this such a good question is it's helping. I think it's helping people think beyond simply tasks and decisions and even like goals and resolutions when we think about, and we yeah. have a unique opportunity to, especially like if you're active on social media, you have a little bit of a paper trail of the kind of story you told last year. Like you could, you could sit down for a half hour, 45 minutes and just scroll through the things you posted. Like, all right, what, what story would somebody else say that I'm telling based on what they see on my twitter feed or based what they say on my facebook page or whatever mm. and even if you don't you know post regularly there there's ways i think to really mine for the story that you're either consciously or unconsciously telling that's that's the kicker i think it's not a matter of whether or not you tell a story it's what story are you telling we're all we're all telling a story yeah. with our lives with our decisions or lack of decisions with our kindness or apathy or root, whatever that part is inescapable every every single one of us is writing a story i think when we when we keep our face too close to the canvas for too long you you can get so uh almost obsessively focused just on this decision versus that decision or this course of action. and obviously sometimes you need to get really close to the canvas like that's there are times and seasons mm-hmm. i think to really hone in like okay i gotta be really really particular and careful with this thing here but i think. Some of the things I've struggled with over the years is taking regular uh, systemic conscious steps back to say, what kind of life am I building right now? Is this the kind of is this the kind of story that I want to be able to tell my kids, for example, having kids has illuminated that for me in a completely new way. Like I want to be able to tell this part of my story to my kids and like he was saying, not have to skip parts or gloss over some of the details. I think it's a I think it's a really helpful question to kind of keep out in front And uh, and it can be, you know, way easier said than done, because a lot of us are very, very kind of like task and goal driven.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let me just finish off how Andy Stanley does this. He says, considering your story draws you out of the immediate and focuses on the eventual. It empowers you to put the decision making process within the broader context of the story of your life. Our story is future tense and every decision can be improved by keeping this question in mind. What story do I want to tell? One day down the road, you'll either tell your own story or have your story told Mm. by others. You can decide today who you want to be, and your future decisions can flow out of that vision. Make your story a good one, one worth retelling. Good words there from Pastor Andy Stanley at Fox News. You can find that up at our Facebook page, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Lord willing, will be with you tomorrow from four until six for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.